Lord Jesus, receive now our worship. You who are highly exalted, highly lifted up. We adore you. We praise you. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And we look up. You are in control. For it's in the awesome name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning to you. If you do not know me, my name is Pastor Ryan, and I will be filling the pulpit this morning. I oversee the uh, worship and the youth ministries here at Harvest, and I am thrilled to be sharing God's word with you this morning. I'm going to continue the series that our elders have been doing all summer long called A New Look at the Old Testament. We have heard some awesome sermons from our pastor and our elders covering a lot of the stories that we heard growing up in Sunday school. And I am, can I use the word, stoked (laughs) to be bringing to you the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Now, I don't know of a more classic Old Testament story. I mean, unbelievers even know this story, right? The story of David and Goliath is an absolute classic. You remember it and I remember it. Growing up, we heard this. And there's a lot of reasons that it is a classic, but I don't want to spoil the story for you, so I'm not going to go into those reasons. I just want to get into the text. So I want to start this way. Use your imagination. Join me this morning in the desert. You're standing in the desert. You're with the army of Saul. You've come out to face your arch nemesis, the Philistines. You're poor. You've grabbed whatever farm implement you can get your hands on as a weapon. You're standing there, not in armor, but in a tunic, sandals on your feet. It's hot desert, wind, but you're there because Saul has called you into action. You're standing on one side of a mountain. There's a valley in between and on the other side. You see your enemy that has plagued you for hundreds of years, the Philistines. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if you haven't turned there already, please join me in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sakah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sakah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and a valley between them, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits 
and a span. I'm going to stop right there and explain that six cubits in a span, that's over nine feet tall. Now, some of you guys, you're engineer-minded, and you can kind of see the distance between two points relatively easy, make a good guess that's about so far apart, but I'm not minded that way. I really need a visualization to help me kind of see this. So for those of you out there who are more like me, let's, let's take a look here. Okay. All right. There you go. Nine. Okay, that's about nine feet, but let's go a little bit over because he's over nine feet. Okay, so that's about the height of Goliath. Now, let's add another dimension to this because about this time in Israel's history, the average height of a man was about 5'5". Five, five. Okay? All right, get that picture in your head. Out of the camp of the Philistines comes this giant. Now, Goliath's not actually called a giant here in 1 Samuel 17, but we believe he is a giant because if you know your history, the book of Joshua records the presence of giants in the land of Canaan, and they were called the Anakim. And when Israel was conquering the land of Canaan, they actually drove those giants to the cities of Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, and Goliath was from Gath. So we simply assume he was a descendant of the Anakim among the giants. All right, let's continue reading in verse 5. Remember the height, but continue reading in verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, roughly 126 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is about 15 pounds. You might not think that's not so heavy, but if you think about 15 pounds on the edge of a spear, that'll do some damage. And his shield bearer went before him. So think about that. The height... The armor, I doubt very seriously he was a skinny guy. He probably had a lot of muscle on him. So he's a huge, imposing figure walking, and he's fully armored, walking out of the ranks of the Philistines. Look at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? I can't do his voice. I imagine even James Earl Jones would fall short of this guy. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now you're standing there with your brethren ready to do battle. Here comes this hulking figure. And he gives you this challenge, which is probably new to you. You've gone into battle before, and you're used to army against army, but here comes this champion giving you something you haven't heard of. Give me a representative. Give me someone to represent your army. I represent the Philistines. You give me a representative, and let's fight. Whoever wins, 
That army wins and the other army is the slave. You followed your king Saul, who by the way in his early career was very victorious in battle, very fired up to defeat the enemies of God. But how does your leader respond? Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Your king is greatly afraid, perhaps even visibly shaking in fear. And as go the leaders, so go the people. Everyone is terrified. And that's where we find ourselves this morning And the scene shifts, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So get this in your minds. You're there in the battle, and David has been coming and going for the past 40 days, bringing uh, food, bringing supplies and things to his brothers, and that's the way it often went back then, especially if they were close by. If you had a son or a husband in battle and you could make the journey, you could bring them supplies and as we'll see in a minute, even bring supplies to their commander so they could eat. And this has been going on for 40 days. And for whatever reason, David has not heard Goliath's challenge. Perhaps he came in the afternoon. Perhaps he came at night. Who knows? But he's missed Goliath's challenge. Goliath would come morning and evening to present this challenge which if you do the math, that's 80 times as Saul and his army, you, are simply terrified. Nothing's happened for 40 days. Verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also, Take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out in the, line, in the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. So here's where we are. David arrives at the right time this time. The men are going out. They're shouting the war cry. That's they're trying to psych each other up. If you've seen Braveheart, you know what's going on here. They're shouting. You know, it's what guys do when we all get together. 
And David arrives at this time. He arrives at this time. Now, I want to submit to you this morning that the real battle of David and Goliath started before he got to the giant. We're gonna see in our text this morning that David actually meets several obstacles before he even gets to the giant. And any one of these obstacles could have thwarted his battle with Goliath. But I wanna walk through this passage and see how David overcome these obstacles. So I've named the sermon this morning Five giant obstacles and one small giant. And we'll see what that looks like. The first obstacle that David faces this morning is intimidation. The first obstacle that David faces is intimidation. Now remember, the entire army, that's you, that's me. We're standing there in battle. We see Goliath. We see his imposing size. We see that he's fully armored. We hear his challenge, and for 40 days, that has caused us to quake in fear because that's intimidating. By man's standards, there's no way for, each, for one of us to overcome this giant. We're intimidated. Here's, Dan, here's David, standing with his brothers, talking with his brothers. Out comes Goliath. How could he be intimidated very easily? And I want to paint a a picture in your head. You might be used to seeing pictures or hearing stories of of boy David, maybe nine or ten years old. Most likely at this time, David is teenager, mid-teenager age. He's probably not this skinny little runt. He's probably got some of that teenage muscle on him, maybe a little scraggly facial hair. It's about how he is right now. But still he's no match for the giant. How does he overcome this intimidation? Let's look at this, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that's the giant, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That means free from taxes, by the way. And David said to the men who stood by him, what? What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So what does David do? David hears the challenge. David sees the exact same sight that all his brothers had seen for the past 40 days. And instead of being intimidated, what does David do? David stands on his foundation. He stands on his foundation. He refuses to react in fear. And instead, he looks at the situation through the lens of, what, of the promises of Yahweh. He knew this was their land. He knew they were the people of the living God. So he refused to be intimidated. Instead, he responds with some bold words. Who is this guy that thinks he can defy the living God? See, David was anchored in the foundation of God's truth. Now let's be real. As Christians, you and I face intimidation every day. 
You know, simply sharing our faith is intimidating. I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I've, I've faced that even in recent days, opportunity to share my faith and have been intimidated by, by it and, and backed away when I could have shared my faith. Why? Because it's intimidating. Living the Christian life is intimidating. Raising kids is intimidating. Being a spouse is intimidating. Being an honest person is intimidating. Being a person who follows Christ and tries to live a righteous life is intimidating, especially with the pressures of the culture that seem to get heavier and heavier every day to be tolerant. Taking a stand for Jesus continually, day after day, gets more and more intimidating. How do we overcome this? We face intimidation with our foundation. We face the intimidation the world throws at us by standing on our foundation in Jesus Christ. We anchor ourselves to the promises of God, namely this. There's many promises through the Bible, but namely this. We stand on the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. His last words to us while he was ascending, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if we truly believe that the God who spoke the universe into existence is with us, is there any form of intimidation that we cannot face? So we stand on the foundation that we have in the promises of God. Now back to our story. You're standing there. You happen to be near young David. You hear the challenge from the giant. You're fearful, but you hear David's words. Who is this guy? And you're thinking, who is this boy? Does he not know what's going on? Does he not actually see the giant? And you hear David. He's asking around, wait a minute, what's going to be done? What's going to be done? And David's collecting information. And his brothers are standing there. And David is the only one who's not fearful. What happens next? Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Second obstacle that David faces, relational conflict relational conflict. Eliab's the oldest brother, and Eliab, for whatever reason, goes berserk. And maybe Eliab is, is angry that he's fearful and his little brother is acting bold. Maybe that's it. Maybe, hearkening back one chapter previous to 1 Samuel 16, that is when David was anointed. And if you know your your Old Testament history, Samuel came to anoint a new king because Saul had failed. Saul had turned away from the Lord. And Samuel came to Jesse and his eight sons. And each son passed before Samuel, rejected. And Samuel even said in his heart when he saw Eliab, surely this is the man. This is the king. Something about Eliab. Maybe he looked good. Maybe he had a commanding presence. We don't know. But something about Eliab stood out to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, no, I have rejected him. So Eliab had to watch as each of his brothers passed before Samuel. And David was anointed. Could there be some jealousy there? Maybe. 
But for whatever reason, Eliab gets angry at his brother and spouts off, honestly, nonsense. He says, with whom have you left those few sheep? Eliab was the first. He knew who the sheep were left with. Eliab knew how it went. David's been coming and going for 40 days. This is nothing new. Relational conflict. You know, in our lives, in your life and my life, we will face relational conflict. In fact, we could talk about stories of relational conflict. We and I could sit down and talk about things that have happened in our family that have been painful and hurtful. Each person in this room has been a victim of relational conflict, and each person in this room has been a cause of relational conflict. I remember in my family growing up, there was a lot of conflict between my mom and her dad, my grandfather. And even though I wasn't directly involved, I witnessed some of the arguments, and I witnessed my t- the tears from my mother and the pain that happened there. That was painful. You have similar stories. And sometimes... When we have relational conflict, we are tempted to turn away from what God has called us to do. Eliab was the firstborn, by the way. He was the inheritor. He could have told David, get out of here, go back home, and David could have, with his head down. But how does David overcome this? Verse 29, I love this. David said, what have I done now? Kind of hear that from, from the youngest. You know, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? Was I, just, was I just talking? What does David do? Verse 30. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him as before. He turned away and asked those same questions. Wait, what's going to be done for the man who kills the Philistine? And he got the same information as before. What does David do to overcome relational conflict? Quite Quite obviously in this passage, he just turns aside. Turns the other cheek, you might say. He doesn't even engage. When we face relational conflict, let me ask you a question. How do you respond? Do you make it worse? Do you cower? Sometimes the best thing to do is just not to engage especially in a situation like this where Eliab is heated and he's angry. He's not being rational. And David's just, no, we can't do this right now. And maybe you've had situations in your life where you've had to deal with that. Somebody who's angry, somebody who's irrational, and the best thing to do in those situations is just, no, I'm not gonna engage. And I understand that maybe a later time, let's cool off, let's talk this through. There are times certainly to do that and maybe that's just putting it off to a later time is what needs to happen. But sometimes in the heat of the moment, no, I'm not gonna deal with this right now. This could have been something to have really tripped up Daniel, but instead, or David, but instead, he doesn't even engage. All right, what happens next? Well, what happens next? You have just witnessed this argument or this, this, this heated exchange between Eliab. You've witnessed David turning aside and then there's this awkward moment. Because when we re- witness other families fighting, there's always that awkward moment. But David turns to you and he asks you the same questions and you relate to him. This is what's gonna happen to the person who defeats the Philistine. And you know, news travels fast you heard it, 
Your brothers heard it. Your brothers in arms have heard it. It passes down the line. It reaches all the way to King Saul. He overhears just these bold words that David uttered. And what happens next? Look at verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And here we have the third obstacle that David faces. The third obstacle that David faces, criticism. Criticism. David boldly says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, that's me, I will go out and fight the Philistine. And what does Saul say? No, you can't do that. You don't have what it takes. You're too small. You're too timid. You're too ugly. You're too this, too that. You don't have it. You can't do it. You're wrong. Criticism. Again, something every person in this room has faced. And again, has been a stumbling block in every person's life at times to do what God has called us to do. When we listen to criticism instead of listening to the Lord, then we too react in fear instead of boldness. But what does David do? What does David do? Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. How does David react to criticism? He looks at what God has done in the past. He looks at how God had delivered him in the past. Now this makes me laugh. I don't have a teenage son yet, yet. It'll be here the next time I blink, but I don't have him yet. But I can't imagine, you know, if he gets like a paper route or some kind of job, coming home that day and I say, hey, son, how was the job today? He goes, fine, killed a lion. <laughs> I mean, I can't fathom that, but here's this teenage boy. He's like, just another day in the job watching the sheep, killing some lions, killing some bears, oh my. Rough life back then. But what does he do? He goes back to the past and he looks at the ways the Lord delivered him in the past. And when we face criticism from other people, I'm not talking constructive criticism. You understand that's something different. I'm talking about the criticism that puts us down, the criticism that says you can't, you don't have what it takes. David goes back and, say, say, and thinks, but I did then because the Lord was with me. And whatever I faced then, I can face now because the Lord is with me. So we reject ungodly criticism by remembering what the Lord has put us through 
what the Lord has brought us through, what the Lord has done in our lives in the past. When you're tempted to listen to the criticism to the point where it's gonna get you off track from following the Lord, you remember, God did this in my life. God did that in my life. God's gonna do this in my life again. So look what happens next, verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail and David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried to go in vain for he had not tested them. The fourth obstacle that we see in this passage, I'm calling the weapons of man. The fourth obstacle that David faces here, I'm I'm calling it the weapons of man, okay? So David convinces Saul to go up against Goliath, against all sound judgment, by the way. And Saul finally says, all right, but you're gonna need some things. We're gonna do this the right way. I've got some armor, let's put it on you. I mean, and Saul's intentions here are good, by the way. Don't you think? Saul doesn't want David to fail. Saul's intentions here are good, but there's some problems with this armor. First of all, David's still a youth. I told you about 15-ish, 16, somewhere around there. Saul's a full-grown man. And by the way, we know from the Bible that Saul is actually head and shoulders taller than your average man. So the armor's a lot bigger. By the way, some actually think that maybe Goliath wanted to call Saul out to challenge him because of all the people of Israel, Saul made the most sense. Maybe, maybe not. Whatever the reason, Saul was too busy being fearful. But he gives David the armor, puts it on him. It's oversized, it's heavy, David can't wear it. He cannot depend on the weapons of man. And sometimes in our lives, we are constantly tempted to take up the weapons of man to fight our spiritual battles. Now, I want to define that. What do I mean by weapons of man in our context? Anything that you run to before God. When I'm talking weapons of man, I'm not necessarily talking bad things. I mean, God used men with swords and armor to fight other battles. It wasn't that the armor and the sword was, was a bad thing. It's that Saul was depending on those things instead of God. And we get that backwards too sometimes. Sometimes we go to things before we go to the Lord. Sometimes we go to good things before we go to Jesus. Other people, good books. Sometimes depending on our situation, we'll we'll run to a medication. And I'm not calling those things bad, you understand. But when we're standing on those things and not standing on Jesus, those things are ultimately gonna fail us. Let me just paint a picture for you. Let's let's just hypothetically say you're dealing with a difficult time in your life. In fact, you may even call it a time of depression. And so you reach out to a good friend. That's a good thing to do. And you call them up and they remind you who you are in Christ and they remind you that you are a conqueror in Jesus Christ And, and they encourage you and they pray for you and you feel better. But then you wake up the next day, and it's right back to, ah, I can't face this day. So you call your friend up again, and again, they remind you who you are in Christ, and they pray for you, you feel better. But then you wake up the next day. I'm not saying don't call your friends. But I'm saying if you're gonna depend on that phone call every single, you're gonna wear that person out. 
because they're not Jesus. And if you're running to that person instead of running to Jesus, even though that's a good thing, and you guys know, and I share things with my small group men all the time, and we pray for each other, that's a good thing, keep doing that, but if we depend on those things without depending on the Lord, it's going to fail. Same way with any kind of good book, any kind of medication, anything that we choose to run to instead of running to the Lord first, it's ultimately gonna fail. And that's what I'm talking about in our lives. Hello. That's what I'm talking about when I say the weapons of man. What does David do to overcome these weapons? Well, in his eyes, in David's eyes, these things are not primary. He can't even walk in them. How does he overcome this obstacle? You know, quite simply, he tosses them off. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So he put them off. Not even going to do with this. Not even going to try it this way. Verse 40, then he took up his staff, you know the staff that the shepherds would carry, in his hand, and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard a lot of theories about five smooth stones. Why were there five smooth stones? We've been talking about this in the elder meeting, and and one of the theories is that Goliath had four sons. And I looked and tried to figure, because I like that, you know, think, do the math. Four sons, one giant. David's going to do this. But I looked and looked and looked, and I could not find concrete evidence that that is exactly why David picked up five smooth stones. So then I got to thinking, you know why that David picked up five smooth stones? He picked up five smooth stones because he found five smooth stones. (laughs) I do think what's going on here, though, is a comparison between the weapons of man and what he was used to or what God provided for him. He couldn't use the weapons of man, so he turned to what the Lord had provided for him. Now, I want to step back into the narrative, okay? The last thing that you saw was David disappearing in a Saul's tent. You didn't get to see this exchange. That was, that was a close-up interview that we just had. You didn't get to see the exchange between David and Saul. You just saw David disappearing into Saul's tent. And your mind is reeling. What's going on here? Is Saul actually thinking of... No, 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 not at all. But then, a few minutes later, you see David come out of the tent. You see him go down to the brooks, actually like a dry riverbed is what we think it is. He stoops down, then he stands back up. And you expect him to go back to the luggage, get his things, and take off. Saul set him straight. But instead, he walks down into the valley toward Goliath. And your mind races back to the challenge. You know that if David fails, you, your wife, your children, your parents will be slaves to the Philistines. You look at the imposing size of Goliath. You look at the, for lack of a better word, diminutive size of David. And all you can think is it's over.
Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. In other words, Goliath was indignant. He looks and he sees this shepherd boy, and he's indignant because there's no honor in killing him. Goliath was a man of war. He wanted a champion that he could boast over, that he could tell people later how he slaughtered the champion of Israel instead he gets this shepherd boy and he's thinking, there's no honor in this. So what does he do? Verse 43, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? You come at me with sticks, referring to the shepherd's staff. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now that would have been encouraging to David. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. That would have been encouraging to David because David knows Genesis 12, 3, where the Lord says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Verse 44, the Philistine says to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And in parentheses, Leviticus 24, 26, catch this, whoever is guilty of blasphemy was to be, do you know, stoned. Interesting. But David keeps going. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I don't let my kids talk like that, but you know. I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hands. Our final obstacle that David faces is this, the enemy's trash talk. The enemy's trash talk. All right, guys, hands up. Who knows? Remember trash talk from the, the old play school day or playground days? Remember trash talk? You know, my dad can beat up your dad. Remember that? This is classic trash talk. Goliath says to David, come here, and I'm going to give your body to the beasts of the earth. And David says, oh, yeah, I'm going to give your whole army to the beasts of the earth. Classic. We face the enemy's trash talk every day. You and I have an enemy, not of flesh and blood, who trash talks us every day. And it comes in the form of accusations. You're a failure. You won't succeed. You can't faithfully follow Jesus. He's abandoned you. Why are you going to even try? You'll just screw it up. The enemy attacks our minds constantly with lies. 
every single day. He may have been doing it right now. How do we overcome the lies of the enemy? How do we overcome his trash talk? By standing on God's truth. There's a reason why God gave us his word. To stand on his truth. Satan says things like, you're no follower of Jesus. God says, you are my child. Satan says, you're a failure. God says, you're more than a conqueror. Satan says, he's abandoned you. God says, he's with you always. Satan says, you're still in your sins. God says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Confront the lies with God's truth because if we listen to the lies, our lives are gonna reflect that in fear and anxiety and depression and failure. But if we refuse to listen to the lies, we stand on the truth of God's word, then our lives are going to reflect that with victory and peace and love and security. So friend, this has been a personal battle for me. And I'll guarantee it's been a battle for you as well. Don't listen to the lies. Stand on God's truth. That's exactly what David does. Now remember, you listen to this impassioned speech by David as he walks out there. You hear Goliath's challenge and you're pretty much like, yeah, that's true. But then you hear David and you think to yourself, this kid's got guts. Gotta give him that. Now, what happens? We faced our five giant obstacles. You see David overcome all five. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his back and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So you're watching this and you're standing there with your brothers in arms. You see David run. You see a blur of movement. You see something happen and the Philistine falls face down into the sand and dust billows everywhere and obscures both warriors for a moment and all you can do is and there's a moment of silence between you between the Philistines it's as if nobody can imagine what has just happened and then the dust settles and the champion is on the ground but David's not done. David said he was gonna do this, so he's gonna do it. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. Now this is classic too. It goes back to that line, 
a fight between us is going to be two hits. I hit you, you hit the ground. That's what happened. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now this is the point where the Philistine army realizes something has gone horribly wrong. But they're not going to honor their commitment to be Israel's slave. Look what happens. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And it's at this moment that hope, courage, renews your body. You feel it coursing through your veins and you take up the charge with your brothers and you chase your enemy. The men of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and in the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistine and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Victory. Victory because a shepherd boy was willing to stand up. Victory because he overcame five obstacles, any one of which could have derailed him meeting Goliath. Victory because he trusted the Lord. This is not a fun story we tell our kids. This is not a moral tale of good conquering evil. Do you know what the key is to this passage? It's verse 46 and 47. David's talking to Goliath and he says, I'm gonna kill you that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. It's interesting. David, don't forget, was a representative of the armies of Israel. Now here's your Easter egg. A thousand years later, another shepherd would be the representative for you and for me. Another shepherd would face these same obstacles, intimidation, relational conflict, criticism, a temptation to do things man's way, and the enemy's trash talk. And yet another shepherd would be completely and totally victorious. Why? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. Why was David victorious? Why was Jesus victorious? Because they both knew the battle belongs to the Lord. So how are we? How are we victorious? How are you going to walk out of this room and face the pressures of everyday life and be victorious by submitting and remembering the battle belongs 
to the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. Jesus, you conquered. Jesus, you are still conquering in our lives. The only reason that David prevailed over Goliath is because you wanted him to. And the only reason that you prevailed on the cross and the grave is because God wanted you to. And the ways that we can prevail and overcome the obstacles that we face in our life is by relying on you. Yours is the battle, just as yours is the glory and the power. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you, and we say all this in your awesome name. Amen.